Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are at Parshat Yitro this week, and uh, the triennial reading puts us um, at the actual events of Sinai. Um, and the actual revelation at Sinai. So, um, so there's, we could spend two weeks on this Parsha. We could spend two weeks on this triennial reading. Um, chapters 18, 19, and 20, we could be here a really, really long time. Um, maybe we'll do that someday. Um, look at all the traditions and, and Midrashim around revelation. We've over the years done some of them. Um, so, but we're not going to do that today. <laughs> we don't have time. So um, there's a there's a lot here. Obviously, this is you know we spend a lot of time really in this parsha. You know, we we live into this parsha all the time, even studying Torah. All right, we we come to um, kind of the core of this week's parsha. Um, the uh, revelation that we have in this week's parsha, it's going to continue next week, obviously with mishpatim with laws. Uh, but this one is the Ten Commandments. Um, the version that we have in Exodus, there's a different version of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy. Um, so let's let's look at a little bit of Torah because there's there's a lot going on here. We we've studied this every year, right? We've studied this story every year. Um, so 18, 19, and 20, um, we have reviewed lots of times. Uh, we've reviewed it together 11 times because I'm here, I'm starting my 12th year in July. So we've done this 11 times. So we always, you know, kind of lean in a little differently um, to it, but um, let, so we'll, I have a few um, ways I want to look at it today, continuing our conversation from last week. So those of you who were here last week and we talked um, about um, understanding Israel, biblical Israel as a character and um, looking um, at the at the work, uh, her name just went on my head, um, of our scholar of literature who um, who really looks at what we have in Torah as the character of Israel. And we're going to look. We st- we started with weaning in the desert last week, and we're going to talk about the next stage of development in this character's um, becoming. Um, and once we move from weaning, so around toddlerhood, um, then we have, of course. Um, the rights of someone entering initiation into the tribe. Okay. So that's how we're going to, we're going to have some fun looking at it that way um, this morning. So I want to fly through some of this. There's stuff I want to highlight from 18, but I mostly want to fly through 18. Um, Yitro, right? So so the whole portion is Yitro. Vaishma Yitro chohen midyan choten Moshe. So who heard? Yitro heard. Who was Yitro? Um, the priest of Midian, Choten Moshe, the father-in-law of Moshe. And what did he hear? He heard everything that Elohim had done for Moshe and for Israel, uh, Elohim's people, that Yudhei had taken them out of the land of Egypt. So Yitro takes... Uh, Sipora, Moshe's wife, after she had been sent home. We don't know when she was sent home. We have nothing about this. We don't know what's going on here. Um, probably a lost piece of the tradition. 
and her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom. That is to say, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. Presumably that means Moshe has named his son, I was a foreigner in a foreign land. What foreign land was, where, where was Moshe a ger? Where was Moshe a stranger? In Egypt? He was a prince of Egypt. In Midian? Right? Okay. So we have to kind of figure out what that means a little bit. And the other was named Eliezer, meaning the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh, from Eli and Ozer, uh, help. Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, brought Moshe's son and wife to him, sons and wife to him in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. He sent word to Moshe, I, your father-in-law Yitro, am coming to you with your wife and your two sons. Moshe does the right thing. He goes out to greet his father-in-law. That is how you show respect. You don't wait for them to come to you. You go meet them when you hear they're on their way. He bowed low. So again, this is proper behavior um, for someone that you are showing respect to. He bowed low and kissed him. Each after each asked after the other's shalom. And they went into the tent. So there, Moshe tells his father-in-law everything that yud had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardships that had been fallen, had befallen them on the way and how yud had delivered them. Remember some of the hardships we talked about last week? Um, and Yitro rejoiced over all the kindness that yud had shown Israel when God delivered them from the Egyptians. Vayomer Yitro, Baruch Adonai. Yitro, the priest of Midian, blesses Yudhe right? Says, blessed is Yudhe who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Atta, now, Yadati Kigado Adonai Mikola Elohim. Now I know that Yudhe is greater than all the gods. Yes, by the result of their very schemes against the people, that is a very tangled sentence, even in Hebrew. Um, and Yitro, Moshe's father-in-law, what did he do? He brought Ola Uzvachim. He brought burnt offerings and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with the elders of Israel to partake of the meal before God with Moshe's father-in-law. I want to stress this to us. This is a priest of Midian who comes and blesses God and then brings sacrifices to God, yud hey God, and Aaron, the high priest, eats of that sacrifice. And so does Moshe, right? Lifnei Ha'elohim, before God. This is absolute proof that it did not matter that Yitro was not Israelite. It did not matter. He worshipped yud hey He brought sacrifices to yud hey and the high priest of Israel, sat and ate in a sacred meal with Yitro. I, I can't overstate, right, what, what this tells us about the attitude, um, at least in Torah, for people worshiping our God, worshiping with us, participating with us, and the highest officiants of Israelite religion sit and eat of that sacred meal with Yitro. Next day, Moshe does what Moshe does, he sat as magistrate among the people. Well, I don't love that that translation. By Yeshiv Moshe Lishpot et Ha'am, he sat. He sat in order to judge for the people. 
But the people stood uh, waiting, essentially, for Moshe from the morning till nighttime. There's many traditional commentaries that jump all over this, that Moshe is sitting and the people are standing. And Moshe's father-in-law saw how much he had to do for the people. And he said, what is this thing you're doing to the people? Why do you act alone when all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moshe replied, it's because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me. I decide between um, them and I make known the laws and teachings of God. But Moshe's father-in-law said, the thing you're doing is not right. You will surely wear yourself out and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel and God be with you. You represent the people before God. You bring the disputes before God and enjoin upon them the laws and the teachings and make known to them the way they are to go and the practices they are to follow. You shall also seek out from among all the people capable men who fear God, trustworthy men who spurn ill-gotten gains, set these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times, have them bring every major dispute to you, but let them decide every minor dispute themselves. Make it easier for yourself by letting them share the burden with you. If you do this and God so commands you, you will be able to bear up and all these people too will go home um, unwearied. Yavov shalom. They also will go to their place shalom in peace, in wholeness, in a good state. And Moshe heeded his father-in-law and did what he said. And he chose people and put them over different sizes of groups. And they judged the people at all times. Then they came to Moshe for as Supreme Court. Um, Moshe bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way to his own land. Again, he does not become Israelite, but he sets up the judiciary for ancient Israel. Yitro, a non-Israelite, just came and told Moshe, the way you're doing it is wrong. You're going to wear these people out. It's not fair that they have to wait for you. And he institutes the judiciary. And this is, this is accepted. And then he goes back to his people. So not only is he welcomed into their worship of Yudhei and their sacred sacrificial meals, but he also is an advisor to Moshe so serious that he changes the entire way that Moshe is leading the people. All right. So on the third new moon, after the Israelites had gone forth from the land of Egypt, on that very day, they entered the wilderness of Sinai. <clears throat> Having journeyed from Rephidim, they entered the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. Israel encamped there in front of the mountain. And Moshe went up to God. And God called to him from the mountain saying, thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and declare to the children of Israel, you've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to me. Now then, if you will obey me faithfully and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Indeed, all the earth is mine, but you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the children of Israel. I hate that children of Israel, to the descendants of Israel, the people of Israel. So Moshe came and summoned the elders of the people and put before them all that God had commanded him. All the people answered as one saying, 
everything that God has spoken, we will do. The very famous um, Nase, right? Everything that God has spoken, we will do. And Moshe brought back the people's words to God. Now, this is this is a very tangled Parsha. Everybody talks about it. Everybody talks about how linearly it just does not, does not make a lot of sense. It's very hard to follow the action. You've heard me say it a million times. I'll say it again. A lot of us believe that's be, I buy the scholars who say that's on purpose. They didn't have just lousy editors. Um, they left it that way on purpose because this is not a normal event and it's not a normal set of events. And one of the ways to communicate that is to have it be not easy to follow because it's not regular. It's not just, okay, you went to the store, he picked out some avocados, he brought two home, one ripened that day, two ripened the next week. Like that, that, that's not what this is. And one of the ways to communicate that is to confound the language a little bit. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is God hasn't spoken yet. <laughs> right? So the people say, everything God, is, everything God said, we'll do. Uh, what? <laughs> we'll do what? God hasn't spoken yet. Um, okay. And God said to Moshe, I will come to you in a thick cloud in order that the people may hear when I speak with you and so trust you ever after. And Moshe reported the people's words to God. And God said to Moshe, go to the people and warn them to stay pure today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes. Let them be ready for the third day for on the third day, God will come down in the sight of all the people on Mount Sinai. You shall set bounds for the people round about, saying, beware of going up the mountain or touching the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain, mot yumat. Rabbi Hyman did a whole teaching on mot yumat and what that means. No hand shall touch him, but he shall either be stoned or shot. Beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up on the mountain. Moshe came down from the mountain to the people and warned the people to stay pure, and they washed their clothes. And he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. There's lots of discussion about this all over the place. Um, but essentially, you are to refrain from sexual relations because you're supposed to be focused and you're supposed to be pure. And we know that emissions make, um, make you impure. So whether it's during the night or whether it's during intercourse. Um, and so this is really about staying focused because this is a ritual. This is this is ritual preparation for what's about to happen. And our scholar is going to argue that this is ritual preparation for the people, the character Israel's initiation rights into becoming a full-fledged nation. On the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the horn, and all the people who were in the camp trembled. Moshe led the people out of the camp toward God, and they took their places at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, for God had come down upon it in fire. The smoke rose like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled violently. The blare of the horn grew louder and louder. As Moses spoke, God answered him in thunder. God came down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. See, it's up and down and down and up and up and down. And Moshe goes down and up and God comes down and God is up and God is down. <laughs> God comes down on Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain. And God called Moses to the top of the mountain and Moses went up. Then God said to Moses, go down, <laughs> warn the people not to break through to the um, to Adonai, to gaze lest they perish. The priests also who come near God must stay pure, 
lest God yifrutz by him, right? With God busting out, it's uncontrollable. God will burst out. Um, but Moshe says to God, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai for you warned us saying set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. So God's, did God forget that? So God says, go down and come back together with Aaron, but let not the priests or the people break through to come up, lest God break out against them. And Moshe went down to the people and spoke to them. So again, up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down. Um, it's like eight times um, this this goes on. Um, and Nanette, we are seeing your iPad scribble, just so you know, so that you don't write something you don't want us to see, because everybody can see it. So that, that blue line on the left. Um, okay. So now we have, we have Moshe went down to the people and spoke to them, right? And presumably now we have by So God is now speaking all of these things. Um, and here come the 10 commandments. So traditionally in Shul, we stand when the 10 commandments are read from the Torah. I know we're studying them right now. We're not actually reading them in a Torah service, but just so you know, my job to just tell us these things. Um, so here come the Ten Commandments as we have them in Exodus. I am your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the house of bondage. There's a lot of discussion about is that really a commandment? And also remember, they're not the Ten Commandments in Hebrew. They're us. They're um, debroked. They're statements, sayings, things. The word for word and the word for thing is the same word in Hebrew. So you'll notice these, God spoke all these words. So our translation translates as all these words, but word and thing is the same word. So it could have said God spoke all these things saying, which I prefer actually. Obviously, if you're going to speak, you're going to speak words, duh. So I don't love that translation. God spoke all these things. Um, and here are the things. So then you have to ask, okay, what's thing number one? Is it just this statement? Or you shall have no other gods besides me is kind of the point of that first statement. Because I am Yodebabe who took you out of Egypt, therefore you shall have no other gods before me. Um, this is typical of ancient Near Eastern formulas that the, the, the king or the queen, whoever it is, who's going to be ruling you and is deserving of your loyalty th- because they conquered you. Th- when you have this kind of agreement between the, the monarch and those being ruled, including a lesser monarch, it starts with the introduction formula. I am Amy Rose Bernstein, queen of the universe. I want to be the boss of you. And so I am. And therefore, verse two, I mean, verse three, right? So that's this, this introductory statement. It's, it's formulaic. It has to be here in the ancient Near East. So you shall have no other gods, Alpanai, Right before me you shall not make for yourself a sculptured image or any likeness of what is in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them for i am yud your god i am el kana i am a god who is 
very clear that I am deserving of your loyalty. And should you break that loyalty, it's going to go very bad for you. That's what kana means. Kana is what a husband is entitled to feel if his wife gets involved with someone else. So it is an exclusive loyalty agreement and relationship. And if you step outside of that, what the injured party gets to, what they get to live into is kana. So people like to say jealous or whatever, but that's not really what it means. Visiting the guilt of parents upon children, upon the third and fourth generations of those who reject me, but showing kindness to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. We could spend time there. I'm not gonna. It's essentially collective responsibility, which we can pretty easily reconstruct, right? If y'all poison the waters, guess what's going to happen to the third and fourth generation, right? You shall not swear falsely by the name of Adonai, your God, for God will not clear one who swears falsely by God's name. Remember the Sabbath day and sanctify it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath for Adonai, your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your settlements. Again, the ger is included, as are slaves who are not Israelite. So these are folks who it is the Shabbat is binding that you must you must allow them to experience Shabbat, even though they are not Israelite. They have to do Shabbos, even though they're not Israelite. For in six days. God made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And God rested on the seventh day. Therefore, Adonai blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. This is one of the reasons for Shabbat uh, is Zecher Lama'asei Bereshit, a remembrance of the creation of the world. We have another reason for keeping Shabbat, gold star to whoever can tell me what it is. You will love your mother and your father that you may long, uh, sorry, you may honor your father and your mother that you may long endure on the land that Adonai your God is assigning to you. Notice it doesn't say love them. Notice it doesn't say you have to like them. Notice it doesn't say you have to live with them past the age of whatever, right? You, but you must treat them as if they are kaved, as if they have weight to you and in the world, meaning you will respect and honor them. You shall not murder. By the way, this does not say do not, you shall not kill. So anytime somebody says that to you, feel free to correct them. Uh, It does not say thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. That rabbi had every right to kill the intruder. Every right. And nothing in Torah would prevent him from killing that gunman to save his congregants. Okay? Lo tirzach is you shall not murder. Lotin af, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Good luck with that. All of us living in the Palisades, I work on it every single day of my life. I'm not going to lie. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female slave, or his ox, or his ass, or anything that is your neighbor's. So lots of questions here being raised over the centuries about what, how can you tell people not to feel something and feeling that you want what they have, right? How can you tell people they can't feel that? So part of it is about an active sense of coveting. It's one thing to envy what somebody else has. It's another thing to covet. 
because covet is one step closer to doing something about it. It's fine for me to admire somebody's home. It's another thing for me to start thinking I deserve it more than they do. I need to have that house instead of them. That's a dangerous road that's going to eventually lead to action that would be wrong. Same with everything else your neighbor has. When you start to think you should have it, not them, that's coveting. All the people witnessed, uh, okay, you, lo- you got to love this. I'm going to let you all sit with it. I want you all to write me an email about what you think. And all of the people, all the nation, saw the voices and the lightning. And the sound of the shofar. So they saw the sa- they saw the voices, the, the noises, and the kol shofar. They saw the kol shofar, right? There's not another verb here, so it has to be roim. They saw the sound of the shofar and the mountain, right, smoking. So lots of um, commentary on what the heck that might mean. Again. They had very excellent editors all through Israelite history that could have changed this to be, you add the word heard, right? So, but they didn't. So again, put it in the comments or email me what you think. You speak to us, they said to Moshe. Oh, sorry. Um, When the people saw it, they fell back and stood at a distance. You speak to us, they said to Moshe, and we will obey but let not God speak to us lest we die. Moshe answered them, be not afraid for God has only come in order to test you. Remember, we have this word again now in order the fear of God may ever be with you so that you do not go astray. So the people remained at a distance while Moshe approached the thick cloud where God was. God says to Moshe, thus shall you say to your, to the Israelites, you yourselves saw that I spoke to you from the heavens with me. Therefore, you shall not make any gods of silver, nor shall you make any gods of gold, make for me an altar of earth, sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your sacrifices of well-being, your sheep, your oxen, and every place where I cause my name to be mentioned, I will come to you and bless you. But don't make the altar of hewn stone. You shall not put your knives and other killing instruments on them, uh, or it's not kosher. Um, and I just want to show you, where is it? that lots of commentary, particularly the Hasidic tradition, when it says God spoke all these words saying, and then we saw that place where it said, the people said, you talk to God. We don't want, we can't, we can't deal with this. This is way above our pay grade. And, um, and Moshe says, okay. So then the question becomes, what did the people actually hear that they said, okay, that's too much. And um, one of the beautiful Hasidic traditions, um, a very widely accepted tradition among the Hasidim, is that all the people heard was this. All the people, all that they heard was the aleph of the word anochi, I. That's all the people heard. What sound does an aleph make? Nothing. The aleph has to take this vowel underneath it in order to have a sound. The Torah is not vocalized. There are no vowels in the Torah. Therefore, the way it's written in Torah, the Aleph is silent in Torah. And so for the Hasidic tradition, what the people heard was silence. The silence that contained every word that was ever going to be possible in terms of revelation. That's what the people heard, um, which is one of my favorite traditions. Um, 
So what they heard was a pregnancy of language, not the issue of that pregnancy. Um, that's what I love about this. And that really revelation is, happens in silence. That is where we are truly open to the call that is always going forth from Sinai. Um, are we ready to listen? Are we ready to respond? Um, we got to shut up. First of all, <laughs> if there's any hope of that. Um, the other thing I love, um, if you, if you get a chance, there's a wonderful article by Rabbi Arthur Green called Restoring the Aleph. And you can get that PDF for free online, Restoring the Aleph, one of the most beautiful uh, pieces about um, silence and mindfulness and meditation and, and how, um, how old and how important our understanding is that that is where revelation occurs. Um, so it's, it's contemporary mysticism um, and it's beautifully articulated, really beautifully articulated. Okay. Let me see where we're at. All right. What's happening, people? How are we doing? Everybody okay? I know I just flew through that and it's already half an hour gone. Emelinda. Hi. I heard an interpretation that I really loved and you mentioned all of the up and down and up and down language. Uh, and and I love the idea that I read somewhere forever ago that uh, in some interpretations, God actually lifts up the entire mountain and the people gather under it with fear of a mountain being dropped on their head. But the mountain itself forms the the canopy, the chuppah for the wedding of the people of Israel to their God. Beautiful. That Midrash comes from the fact that the people are tahar, which could be translated at the base of the mountain, but it literally means they are under the mountain. So then the rabbinic tradition in its beautiful capacity for imagination says, well, what could that mean, right? There's multiple levels of truth, obviously, in every word of Torah. So what does it mean they stood under the mountain? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, it does. If this is a wedding ceremony between God and Israel, and they're both signing the agreements, and they're marrying each other, the mountain is the chuppah. Beautiful. On that same page of Talmud, it says, God lifts the mountain over the people and says, will you accept my Torah? And they go, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Right? So otherwise, I'm dropping this mountain on you. So then there's a whole conversation among the rabbis about can a coerced agreement be enforced? And whenever they want to make an excuse for the people of Israel, they're like, they were coerced. You can't hold them responsible for agreeing to something under coercion. Right? So it's a very lovely and fantastic, creative way to excuse the people for not fulfilling the mitzvot. It's because, well, you threatened them. You can't expect them to, you can't enforce an agreement that was done under threat. <laughs> All right. So yes, two beautiful midrashim about, um, about the mountain. Um, join the army or go to jail for selling drugs. <laughs> okay. okay, Barry. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's the deal they make with with you know with people. You, you can go to jail or you can join the army. Right. So, if you're coerced, what? Right. How, how meaningful is that? I don't know. Is that what we're saying? Like, is does it change the the understanding of what service is if you're you know literally drafted into it? Um, Dana? 
Uh, I had a quick question. Actually, I was thinking about it when you were talking about Yitro, since he wasn't part of the uh, Israeli, I mean, the, yeah, the Israelites. The Israelites at this point are, are, are a mixed multitude. They're the slaves and everything else. So, but then now we're calling them as a group, the people Israel. Correct. So they're still, they're a mixed multitude. They're, they're coming together. Um, Correct. How long have they been away? How long has it been? Three months. Three months. Okay. Three months. So my point was not that they don't already have non-Israelites among them. My point was Yitro doesn't even join them. Right? The, the, the mixed multitude joined the people of Israel and signed on to that mission and signed on to being part of the people of Israel now. And they're standing at Sinai now. Yitro's not at Sinai, right? Yitro is not signing on with the Jewish people. He's the priest of Midian, right? So, so even he worships God, eats the holy sacrifices. Moshe and Aharon eat that sacrifice with him. So, right, it's obviously kosher. And to use an anachronism, um, and um, right, and he goes on his merry way. He goes back to his people. He doesn't join the Israelite people. That was I was just stressing it for that reason. Uh, and then he sets up the judiciary, so he becomes a major council to write how to run ancient Israel without joining the Israelite project. Okay, all right, we ready to go to initiation? You ready? All right. So all y'all who know about this stuff. Tell me some of the factors that happen with initiation rites. What, what happens? You, you take, and we're talking about boys. We're talking about boys for the most part. They get anointed. They get anointed only if you're going to change status from, that's usually a sacral role. They're not anointed normally, I don't think, um, in, in tribal practice. I thought you you were asking about the uh, the priest. I, I must. No, 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 no. I'm talking about initiation rites for all of humanity, all cultural, right? Terrestrial human culture. What are some of the factors in initiation rites, Mark? Uh, there are all kinds of uh, of uh, sacrifices and uh, endurance tests and uh, things of that sort to. Uh, uh, both inculcate the values and to test the worthiness and to uh, demonstrate the the value of becoming a member of the group. Lovely. Okay. So notice you just used the word test. Didn't we just see that word in our text? Yes, we did. Right. We just saw the same word. Right. Because exactly, there's got to be something scary. Usually, boys are taken away from home, away from their mothers, away from the women, away from their lives as children, where they are safe and treasured, they are taken away from that. They are taken someplace else, right? They're taken someplace else, strange. Scary things are set up to be done to them or around them. And when George said circumcision, often that is part of it. Some kind of blood rite, something really scary. Think about scarring, right? Traditions that scar the boys who are becoming men, right? It is painful. It is bloody. Circumcision was often part of this. Doesn't get more painful or bloody than that, I can't imagine. Not being a man, but I could guess. 
Um, and what's more scary than that for sure, right? The most vulnerable part of you, right? So um, scary stuff and you're in a state of liminality, right? You're taken out of your normal context. Normal behavior is completely and entirely interrupted. Normal life is interrupted and you are in a liminal state. Then scary stuff happens. And then you accept the responsibilities of what it means to become a full-fledged member of the tribe. Um, so she's going to argue that that's exactly what's happening right now with the mountain. That's exactly what's happening with Revelation. This is the character Israel's initiation rites that's happening here. They are in the Midbar. So they're in the middle of the wilderness. They're, they're not in their, they've been taken out of their regular life, right? Um, but also, if that's not enough, you can say, oh, well, that was their weaning, I thought. Okay, fine. They've been taken out of Egypt. They're burst into a new people. They were weaned. Now what's initiation? Three days. You shall purify yourselves. Don't behave as normal. You're preparing Ilana Pardes. Thank you. Ilana Pardes is the one who uh, who did this work. Um, and so she, and so the, it's very clear that they're entering a phase where they're supposed to prepare for this thing that's happening. All of that language about smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and loud, it's all supposed to be scary. The people are terrified. That's appropriate for rites of initiation, right? To be terrified. Because like Mark said, that being willing to subject oneself to that is part of the way one proves the value of being initiated is we're willing to go through the torture of this because it's that important to us that there's that much at stake. Okay. So let's look at Pardes. So she starts with that opening uh, piece that we have. You shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Therefore, if you obey, you shall be a peculiar treasure to me above all people. All the earth is mine, but you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So pointing out the language here of the house of Jacob and the right children of Israel, the descendants of Israel, moving the move from the former to the latter captures the historical process through which Jacob's household became a people. But the most dramatic transition is evident in the leap from these designations to the three titles that appear at the end, titles that we that were never heard before. Am Segula, a, pe- a peculiar treasure, she, she translates it. Mamlechet Kohanim, a kingdom of priests, and a Goy Kadosh, a holy nation. These tokens of chosenness are offered to the children of Israel, provided that they obey God's covenant. The people seem eager to step into this new position. They answer at once and together, yachtav, accepting the divine offer, committing themselves to the law as they commit themselves to each other. She then brings uh, the words of Deuteronomy with this same um, language, right, of God found us in a desert region, in a howling waste, watching over us like the people of God's eye, like an eagle who rouses God's nestlings. So using this language again, um, 
And she talks a little bit about that, how eagles uh, catch their youngs on their young on their backs. But I want to go down to this paragraph. One could regard the entire period of wandering as an initiatory voyage in an empty, howling waste, through which the father introduces his chosen firstborn son into the realm of sacred knowledge. Indeed, as I claimed at the outset, metaphors of national birth, suckling, and initiation intermingle throughout the Pentateuchal account of national formation. But at Sinai, the most sacred station along the road, the most secluded site in the desert, accessible, it seems, only to those who are brought there by God, the Israelites undergo rites that bear a more pronounced resemblance to initiation rites. Above all, they bear resemblance to initiation rites at the onset of puberty, whose role is to mark the boys turning away from childhood and entrance into the world of social responsibilities. Such rites often involve a period of seclusion, a liminal phase, and to use uh, Arnold Van Gennep's terms, in which the initiates are taken to an isolated zone where the sacred codes and customs of the community are revealed to them. (laughs) Doesn't get any closer than that, right? (laughs) The expectations are revealed to them. That's exactly what we have here is revelation. But I love, it's just so much fun to think about it this way. Like I've always used the word revelation, duh, but I never really got it, right? Like what a great way to think about this, that this is the next natural stage of human development in the ancient world is that you would reveal the expectations of adult full membership in the tribe. You don't tell that to children. They know you can do this. You shouldn't do that. Um, but, but lots is kept secret until these rites of initiation. Then the codes and customs of the community are revealed. I love that. Love. Okay. So she, she draws a lot on uh, Greek uh, mythology as well. Um, you know, ancient, ancient um, mythology throughout the world. And she draws on Greek stuff as well, starting here at this word flying. Flying at the appropriate height, as Daedalus warns his son, Icarus is an art. Those who venture to exceed human limits or misjudge their power can only lose their feathers in the terrible heat of heaven and fall into the deep. The people are required to follow Moses' instructions meticulously in preparation for the event. They must purify themselves, wash their clothes, refrain from sexual relations, and above all, resist the temptation to climb the mountain. Take heed, right? She quotes uh, chapter 19 about not touching the border of it or they shall be put to death. The peculiar prohibition against touching here and in the next verse discloses the illicit, somewhat incestuous desire that such initiatory moments generate. To draw even nearer to the divine, to become one with God, to touch his body. But just as sexual relations in the human sphere are regulated, so too the contact between the human and the divine is confined. Moses set bounds about the mountain, A careless glance at the divine realm, let alone touch, means death. Sacred intimacy is at the same time the heart of horror and the greatest desire of all. 
Right, people? Mm-hmm. Yep. Love that. And then, um, because I just wanted to lift this sentence up for you, do the people crave, among other things, to touch the rocky breasts of the deity, right? We were talking last week about longing for the absent mother, longing, right, for the breast. They are being weaned. Um, and, right, so is the, you know, so uh, same with, you know, um, boys and, and incestuous you know, feelings and whatever. Um, and sh- so she's lifting up this erotic quality between um, God and Israel. And Emma Linda quoted it earlier. It's all over the rabbis. The rabbis see this as a wedding many times or an adoption. I prefer adoption. But, um, but right, if it's a wedding, for the rabbis to say that, there's already an erotic quality to the relationship that the rabbis are owning, God loves Israel. God wants to join with Israel. God comes down on that mountain, right, to do that. Um, but here she's saying, you know, that, that it's a normal thing for the young initiate, right, to have those kinds of experiences and feelings for, I would say, any authority figure involved in their uh, transformation. And that that's why those bounds are set so carefully around the mountain, that don't look, don't look, and certainly do not touch, um, right? That, that is a very clearly bounded uh, ritual, a very bounded experience, because what we have here is uh, initiation. So this idea of, you know, the, the people Israel being initiates um, at this point, <laughs> Torah is hot. Thank you, Emelinda. Uh, right, right. It's hot. There's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, love that. Um, so um, the other thing I wanted to show you, uh, it's posted on my my personal Facebook page, not my, uh, because Jews are hot, says Mehmet. Oh, God, we're nothing if not a little self-congratulatory. <laughs> like I always said about Eliana, uh, no self-image problems here. Um, okay, so I want to share with you, like it's on my personal one and not on my, uh, my KI page, um, but I want to show you, I just was... Um, blown away by this piece, just blown away, blown away, people, by this piece. Remember, somebody remind me if I forget that that's where I want to start, but look at this, okay? So the author of this piece, my name is Yoel. I am a Satmar Hasid and a Bible critic. All right, you just, I was like, huh? I'm like, what are you even get? what this article could possibly be about. All right. A 20 something married with three children. Satmar Hasid. Do you understand what that means? Satmar is one of the strictest sects, S-E-C-T-S, that there is in Hasidism. Satmar. He is a practicing Satmar Hasid, raised as such. Um, And crap. Did I pass it? Ah. All right. So he writes this article. You got it. You just got to read it. You just got to. Um, so he studies Torah his whole life, like every good Satmar Hassan from the age of whatever, minus six. He, so he's studying Torah his whole life, but he's not studying Torah. He's studying Talmud because Torah is like, eh. And I was talking to Judy about this because she read this article and she said at Yeshiva that that they, they didn't teach the boys Chumash. They didn't teach them Bible. They taught them Talmud. We girls were taught Chumash. 
We girls were taught eh, Torah. Okay, whatever. The big stuff was Talmud. And so that's what he's talking about. He's talking about he would sneak out his Talmud as soon as the reading of Torah in the shul was finished because he just couldn't wait to be done with Chumash because like who needs it? Uh, and then um, he said, so then, so then he, he, he learns about the documentary hypothesis. He says, I'll never forget the day I started reading Richard Elliott Friedman's who wrote the Bible An online friend recommended it for a beginner. You have to love that. Oh God. I vividly recall reading the first chapter where Friedman dissects the story of the flood in Parsha Noach and the strong impression this made on me, meaning two sources, two different stories that are stuck together. We've done that before together in this class. As I did more research on the topic of academic Bible and studied the documentary hypothesis vigorously, I marveled at the beauty of it. The idea that the Torah evolved the powerful insight that major events don't occur in a vacuum. This resonated with me. The sophisticated techniques that modern scholars have discovered to reconstruct the past and trace back the history of our people, thereby understanding the process by which the rituals evolved and with them, the texts that describe them had a profound impact on me. By this point, I have come to believe that even the documentary hypothesis model is an oversimplification. There are more twists and turns on the way to creating the Torah text as we have it, and some questions will probably never be answered fully. Yet, I still cherish the idea behind it, which left such an indelible impression on me and influenced my way of thought. By losing my old conception of the entire Torah being revealed all at once to the entire nation of Israel, I gained a deep understanding of how our tradition evolved how our ancestors were influenced by the people around them and how they differed from the surrounding nations. When things were put in context, so many obscure chukim of the Torah, which I used to consider impenetrable to a simple mortal like me, now made sense. The intellectual thrill of trying to find the right pieces of the puzzle and rearrange them cannot be overstated. More than merely understanding the Torah on an intellectual level, I discovered a hidden treasure in a text which before then I had barely found meaningful. The more I came to believe that the Torah was written by humans, for humans, from a human perspective, the more I appreciated what it said. In a paradoxical way, once I ceased to view the Torah as a direct divine document beyond human understanding, only then did I start seeing the real divinity hidden underneath the ancient myths and fables of our ancestors. Only then did I realize how these extraordinary people of Judah, sitting in a small land between the mighty kingdoms of the ancient Near East, always threatened to be crushed by them, cemented the basis that was to become the foundation of morality, justice, faith, and hope for half the world's population. Boom! Mic drop! Is there a more beautiful statement of understanding? reconstructionism's perspective on how Torah came to be. Oh my God. A practicing Satmar Chassid. My assumptions are challenged all the time. And I love that. (laughs) Right. That was one of the most beautiful articulations of how and why we study this as a sacred text and treat it as a sacred obligatory call for us every day and own that it is written by humans for humans. They are not in any way mutually exclusive. 
And I just have never heard a more beautiful articulation of why, right? That somebody who believed it was divine revelation, he's like, okay, whatever, the red heifer, whatever, right? Let me get to Talmud, (laughs) right? But once you understand who these people were, what the context they were living in was, what was going on around them, what the neighbors were doing, what messages they were getting, and how they sat with that, and then needed to figure out what was meaningful for them. Where do we want to push back? Where do we want to take from them? Where do we want to borrow? Where do we want to completely overturn? And therefore, here's what we're going to do to try to live into being a people who's an Amsegula and an Amkadosh. A goy kadosh, a holy people. This is how, what we're gonna do to, to to try to live into that. If there's what's more meaningful than that, he's saying. And that when he understood that's what was going on in Torah, now he could relate to Torah. Ah, gorgeous. Okay, Judith. How can he remain a Satmar Hasid though? Okay, so this is why I said. <laughs> Challenges my assumptions all the time because we assume somebody who's practicing as a Satmar Hasid has to believe revelation is from God on Sinai all at once. Apparently not. But isn't it the teaching of the, the sect? What do you mean teaching? Well, I I think that they teach that he's reconstructed it, so he doesn't believe that part. Okay. I didn't realize there was that kind of room for, uh, for thinking. Right? No, Notice he did not publish his last name. <laughs> yeah. Another another clear picture of himself. And and not probably not him at right. all. Exactly. Identifiable. So he's not going to identify himself yet. Obviously, and I believe, I really believe there are many more like him. Yes. Who are living that life because it's meaningful. And as somebody just put in the chat, Kaplan had orthodox praxis until his death. At 103, his praxis remained orthodox his whole life. The founder of Reconstructionism. Why? Which is kind of what I hear behind your question, Judith. Why keep doing that stuff? Why live in that community if you disagree so vehemently with one of their core teachings? Well, part of it is living in the community. I think staying in the community. Apparently, Kaplan was very close at the end of his life to becoming an atheist. That, that's according to people but who my, knew. But my point is he ate according to orthodox standards of kashrut. That's right. Why? If you don't believe in a God that commanded that, why would you continue to practice that? that to be a part of the community. He, people in his community didn't eat like that. The orthodox community? He wasn't orthodox. part of the orthodox community. Well, not then. Not at the end. Right. That's my point. He continued orthodox practice. With a reconstructionist theology, I would challenge us to think about that, <laughs> right? Like, in other words, it did not make his practice of halacha any less meaningful that it didn't come from God. That's right. what the Satmar Hasid is saying. The same thing Kaplan said and lived. That's what's so exciting to me, I think, and so mind blowing and heart opening <laughs> and hopeful, right? Is it? He, Kaplan said, okay, just because it doesn't come from God does not mean it's not meaningful that we evolved practices around eating that helped us feel like we were consuming in ways that made us an amsegula and a goy kadosh. It doesn't, it doesn't have to come from God. And the Satmar Hasid goes further and says it's more meaningful to him 
that it's dafka not from God, that it's from human beings reaching for happiness, that that's what we connect to is our ancestors longing to live lives of holiness and righteousness. And every time we practice the way they practiced, it connects us to that idea. It connects us to that learning, learning, yearning and longing, right, um, to live lives of holiness. It's just, it's just gorgeous. It's just, just yeah, very interesting. Okay. Um, anyway, okay, we gotta stop. Sorry. And, um, and, and, huh? and see, and then attached basically to that article because I read it, I saw it this morning. Was uh, Amanda Gorman's piece that you also posted, which I thought was beautiful, and it had a lot in it of some of the things we're talking about. Thank you, Linda. Yes. Um, Amanda Gorman's piece, um, also on my Facebook, which nobody has responded to, which I don't understand. Um, I'm responding here. Oh, good. Um, (laughs) I can't find it now, though. um, Okay, so I'm going to read you just a a little highlight. I know I have to let you go, but Linda opened that can of worms. (laughs) Yay. Um, Amanda Gorman is talking about she almost didn't give the inaugural poem presentation because she was told by a bulletproof vest if you're going to do that. Um, her mother practiced shielding her body from bullets if someone should come into their home and try to kill her daughter. Um, so she's, t- she's talking about fear, and which is why I posted it, because, you know, living in this house um, right now with, you know, Judy being in chemo and like lots of shit going down and Omicron and everything else. This house sometimes feel like, feels like terrifying. I'm a firm believer, says Amanda Gorman, that often terror is trying to tell us of a force far greater than despair. In this way, I look at fear not as cowardice, but as a call forward, a summons to fight for what we hold dear. And now more than ever, we have every right to be affected, afflicted, affronted. If you're alive, you're afraid. If you're not afraid, then you're not paying attention. The only thing we have to fear is having no fear itself, having no feeling on behalf of whom and what we've lost whom and what we love. Our nation is still haunted by disease, inequality, and environmental crises. But though our fears may be the same, we are not. If nothing else, this must be known. Even as we've grieved, we've grown. Even fatigued, we've found that this hill we climb is one we must mount together. We are battered, but bolder, worn but wiser. I'm not telling you to not be tired or afraid. If anything, the fact that we're weary means we are, by definition, changed. We are brave enough, we are brave enough to listen to and learn from our fear. This time will be different because this time we'll be different. We already are. The truth is hope isn't a promise we give. It's a promise we live. Tell it like this, and we, like our words, will not rest. And the rest is history. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.